Guys, welcome to the Brand Aid Podcast, where we talk branding and business with the biggest names in the world. And we've got Reed Dickens, and he's currently chairman of LA Golf Partners, a former White House assistant press secretary under George Bush, the co-founder of Marucci Sports, a manufacturer of high-end baseball products, and co-founder of EQ Entertainment, an education platform that teaches kids social and emotional skills. Shit, did I miss anything? <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. You must have, you, you did good on that. I did, I did my <laughs> homework. I mean, you know what, the, before we even start, a lot of the, we interview a lot of successful people and none of them have one job. They've got, like you, you they got a paragraph of jobs, right? How, what's your day job? How do you manage all this stuff? So, no, it's a great question. So, so one of the most <clears throat> life-altering for many reasons, but but one of the things that shaped my approach to business is I, I was in the little, you know, six-person bubble. I was around George W. Bush during 9-11 and both wars from 2000 to 2004. I spent 12 hours a day. Um, and I talk to, I tell people all the time, um, the demands on the president's time, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of people who think they should get to talk to the president anytime, right? Congressmen, military chiefs, you know, fundraisers, um, you know, governors, friends, family, everyone you've known in your life, you know, and, and so I got to watch how the president prioritized his decision making and his time, and I and I realized that you know Bill Clinton and Barack Obama became president of the United States at like 43 years old. I'm 43 years old. There's no reason I can't run a few small companies, right? Um, and so uh, it it really is all about how you prioritize and how you. Uh, people ask me all the time, what was George W. Bush like before 9/11 and after 9/11? And I say, well, before 9/11, he was prioritized. Uh, after 9/11, he was ruthlessly prioritized, uh, and and then it, it, that involves hurting some people's feelings and actually having to tell some people in your life that I didn't get back to you because you're not a priority. <laughs> um, and so, so yeah, I, I I spend most of my time trying to build LA Golf Partners. We're trying to build a global golf platform. I'm trying to buy a, 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 a one of the largest uh, manufacturers in in the world, and um, trying to build some technology as well. But then, you know, I'm on the board of six or seven other companies, and and uh, for, fortunately. Um, I, I have my week built into buckets and I, and I stick to it. I, I have a very fluid and dynamic schedule, but generally speaking, I have never scheduled anything on Friday in my, in the last 12 years. Uh, so I keep my Fridays for mental and physical health and networking and golf, whatever. Um, I, Mondays are just for me. I don't have my phone near me. I work, I work all day with my assistant and don't, I don't allow any incoming fire. And then Tuesday and Wednesdays, I do all my operational stuff. So I've, I've stuck to the same general week structure for the most part for probably eight or nine years now. Wow. Wow. Now it's, it's crucial though. It's crucial. Trust me. I, uh, I didn't have a schedule like six months ago and my, I thought my life was so complicated and it was so crazy and I was stressed. And then I just said, all right, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know what to do anymore. And then Michael's like, why don't you just get a calendar? And then I did and my life changed. Yeah. So, you know what, uh, Griffin a book that I recommend to every person, not just young people, every person is a book called willpower doesn't work. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Um, I would l read it, listen to it on audio, whatever you got to do. It's absolutely amazing in terms of learning how to uh, organize your life. But more, more than anything about just priorities, you know, every, everything can't hear. The, the, one of the things I talk about all the time is that book, um, the word priority was a singular word. There was no plural for that word for thousands of years. Um, and, and only in America in the last few decades, that word turned into a plural priorities. There's, and so there's a, there's a whole, a whole lot of psychology of deciding like, what's your most important thing in each bucket of your life and work on that thing, you know, each week or each day. 
Well, guys, how do you know? I mean, I don't know if you know this, Reed, but our boy Griffin has been scouted heavily by the New York Yankees. He's a big deal. We had Brian Cashman on, GM of the Yankees. He gave him a couple challenges. Now, is that how you guys know each other? Were you were you getting them a long term deal with Marucci? I mean, to, to sign them and keep them under contract. <laughs> I mean, is, how did you guys cross paths? So, so actually, we met uh, not through Marucci. We met uh, through Miles Miles Rogers from Wheels Up, uh, who's the ultimate you know connector. And what's funny is one of Miles' partners, or the CEO, Kenny Dichter, was one of my first investors in Marucci and a longtime friend and mentor for the last 20 years. Uh, but yeah, we but we did make uh, Griffin some bats because I heard he could swing it a little bit. Yeah, he uh, he did give me some uh, some Marucci bats. There's one that's actually super sick. It's Matt Black has my name on it. Like, obviously not to, not to swing. And then I have some other bats too that I'm going to take out. Um, actually here pretty soon, I'm, I'm going to swing them. I... I sw- I actually use Marucci bats like through my whole career, basically. Um, I had a Marucci black and a Marucci black two. And I think I used both of those each for like two or three years. Um, so, you know, whenever I met Reed and uh, Miles told me, you know, about Marucci and everything he's doing, I was, I was mesmerized. I'm like, holy shit. I use Marucci for almost five or six years of my life. So Shout out to him no, for that. No, nothing, nothing. Listen, I always say, you know, when you're a serial entrepreneur, uh, I always say, you know, to use the, it's a cheesy analogy, but Marucci's like my first child, right? Um, and uh, I'm, it's all grown up now. We just sold it to private equity about a year ago, uh, but I'll, I'll, it'll always be my, my first child. It's, 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 it's something I'm most proud of, but the Marucci Black, uh, just a quick story. So I grew up swinging the Easton Black Magic, right? And uh, I remember it was that just bat. a, it was just, it was just a black Easton. Right. And so when we were coming out with our first uh, two piece metal bat, um, I, I said, you know what, uh, I'm just going to call it the Marucci black. And we just wrote the word black on the bat. And uh, I got a lot of weird looks from my partners and, uh, but it went on to be the number one selling metal bat of all time. And we put Easton in a bankruptcy. So. That bat was dude, I'm telling you, it's special. I, I've, I don't, I can't even tell you how many, how many times I've swung a Marucci black. That's awesome. So, makes me happy. It it's, me um, happy. yeah, no, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. I need to pull up an old picture of me from baseball, but I don't really, my, my mom has Facebook, but she doesn't really post that much. So I'm not sure, but I, I definitely want to get one of those for you and post it up for a throwback. That's awesome. Reed, how did you go? I mean, you talked about your previous career, right? Working for George Bush, assistant uh, press secretary. How do you go from that to, I want to make bats. I want to kick Louisville Slugger's ass, and I want to become the premium, biggest selling bat company out there. Like, how does that even happen? It's a fair. It's a fair question. So, I grew up uh, in a small town in Louisiana. I had no political connections. I actually watched Bill Clinton. I was at the Air Force Academy graduation visiting a friend when I was like 16, and I saw Bill Clinton's helicopters landing in the parking lot. He was speaking, and I said to my friend, I'm going to do that one day, and he said, how? I said, I don't know. He said, well, who do you know in politics? I said, nobody, and so I went home, and my mom found this a few years ago. I bought a blue notebook and wrote Pathway to the White House on it and just started like everything in my life. I'm getting my singular focus, which is kind of a – people always talk about visualization in this spooky spiritual way, but I think it's more about the science of focus, right? And so to make a very long story short, six years later, I landed in that same – same parking lot on the same helicopter with George W. Bush. Um, and so I, I, I basically just drove to Texas, uh, volunteered, uh, didn't know anyone, um, slept on a stranger's couch, became an intern, then became the assistant to someone, Ken Melman, who's now a big shot uh, in the private equity world, but became an assistant, then went to the Florida recount, 
which was back when we thought that's what we thought was a, a, a crisis of democracy at the time. Uh, and, uh, uh, was an assistant there and then became an, a press assistant to Ari Fleischer, who was the White House press secretary. Then after September 11th, they kind of closed off our West Wing and people couldn't come in and out. And so I started spending more and more time around the president. And um, cool story, Griffin, you'll love this. Um, my, I mean, this is wild because people always say, oh, it sounds like, you know, you were young and you weren't that educated. It was like getting thrown in the deep end. I'm like, thrown in the deep end. It's like, it, it was like getting kicked out of a helicopter into the Amazon River naked. Like, I, I mean, I was in, just paralyzed in over my head, you know, 24 years old. But um, I did my first on-the-record White House briefing as a spokesperson on the field at Yankee Stadium. I don't know if you remember, if you've ever seen the 30 for 30 where George W. Bush threw out the first pitch after 9-11 at Yankee Stadium. Oh, yeah. It's called the pitch. It's probably one of the you know five or ten most iconic moments in sports history. And um, I was down on the field that night at Yankee Stadium. There's a lot of great stories about that night. But my favorite was that I, I the, the reporters all crowded around me behind home plate and said, what was it? What was it? And I said, it was right down the gut. And that was my first quote as a White House spokesman uh, at 25 years old. So, oh, but I didn't <laughs> that's, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> right down the gut. <laughs> but I didn't answer your, I didn't answer your question. Uh, I actually think I said right down the pipe. Uh, I, I, you're, how did I go from that to uh, yeah. baseball? So I moved to California in 2004 started a uh, PR crisis management firm. I was kind of like Michael Clayton. I was kind of a, fi a fixer uh, and, and actually ended up with dozens of corporate and celebrity clients. And that was fun, but not a real scalable business, obviously. Um, sold that to a partner. And so my little brother, I had gotten him a job being the assistant of the governor of Louisiana. He called me one day and said, hey, there's this LSU baseball player that started, a, he's making baseball bats in his backyard. He sent them to a bunch of big leaguers and they're using them in games, but they don't have like a real company set up. So I cold called him flew to Baton Rouge, walked into his warehouse and said, let's, you know, we, we whiteboarded actually for first day we ever met for five hours on a whiteboard. And I said, I'll go raise the money. And if I raise the money, I'm going to be the CEO and you'd be, you'd be my, you know, the baseball guy. And so we co-founded Marucci sports uh, from scratch. But what, what was interesting is that we had great relationships, right? I was the brand business guy and the branding guy. And I say that I was, you know, 29, 30 years old uh, and he was the baseball guy. But, um, Kurt had done something just spectacularly. He had he'd taken, if you look at, if you look 12 years back and you look at it from a big picture perspective, he actually kind of, the Malcolm Gladwell moment was he bought up all the maple wood forest, the Amish maple wood forest, and Louisville Slugger was using ash. And at the time, people were saying stupid shit like you hear golfers saying now about shafts. Like, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, a good hitter can hit a home run with a broomstick and the type of wood doesn't matter. Well, except for that's bullshit, right? It does matter. Um, maple is 6% harder than ash. And on a 300-foot field, that's like 20 feet. That's warning track versus home run, right? And so since the steroid era had just, you know, the A-Rod stuff blew up right when we started Rucci, I actually handled A-Rod steroid crisis with my firm. And so since all the steroid stuff was blowing up, having harder wood actually mattered um, uh, since you couldn't take steroids anymore. Uh, <laughs> wink, wink. Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> And so uh, we we went all in on maple, and we also bone rubbed every single bat uh, with with a with a, a cow femur, which closes the pores. Like we had a lot of you know things like that, um, and we made really good wood. And we wouldn't send a bat to a big leaguer unless it was perfect. And so uh, Louisville Slugger was machine making everything, mass producing everything. They would send bats to their biggest stars, like Derek Jeter, Cal Ripken. Uh, Griffin, Cal Ripken was a baseball player, um, and so uh, they would send bats. <laughs> 
to Derek Jeter and they would all say 32, you know, 33 inches, 30 ounces. And then they would weigh them. And I, we started getting scales for our players. They would weigh them and 10 of the 12 bats would be the wrong weight. So Louisville Slugger was a fourth generation family company. They got sloppy as shit. And we, we had harder wood and we had perfect customer service. And we just, we took 90% of their market share in our first five years. Wow. Yeah. They, I'm telling you, and not only that, but one of the, the most iconic things for me with Marucci was, you know, when Bryce Harper, I saw him with the Marucci bat and he was, uh, there's like this really, uh, iconic picture in my head that I think of with Bryce Harper and he's holding, uh, it's like a gray Marucci bat and it's like the dopest picture ever. And after that, I was like, I have to hop on. I have to hop so, on the wave. So we, so Bryce, uh, Bryce's parents brought him uh, to Baton Rouge. We shot. So we, we did, we had a, a few new unique things. <clears throat> we never paid a player. Um, so we uh, had all the players actually invest. We had 40 players actually uh, cut checks and pay and, and, and invest. And um, that's what I'm doing in the golf world too. So we made the players actual partners. We didn't just use them as marketing props. And so Bryce uh, was a kid, right? He was 17 and his parents brought him to Baton Rouge for us to shoot some videos. And, uh, you know, came to my house. I whipped his ass in ping pong. You know, all those types of things. And uh, but he, you know, he felt like we adopted him as a, as like a seventeen year old, right? And uh, he was freakish. But we made some amazing videos of him at LSU Stadium testing our first metal bat. And he was hitting him out of the stadium. I don't think I've ever told the story publicly. But his grip, the torque of his grip, was so tight. He he pinched the metal, the grip of the metal bat almost flat, like it had been run over by an eighteen wheeler. And the, the knob popped off and it was all jagged. And I, he was about to get drafted first round, you know, first pick. And I was like, stop, stop, stop. I was trying to stop the videos. And he was like, no, it's fine. So he choked up with this smush deformed bat that his hands had dressed and kept hitting him out of the stadium. And we got some, some incredible video that day. Wow. That, wow. that is insane. Young Bryce Harper swinging the Marucci. <laughs> which, which bat was it? It was the remember? first metal out. Like it was the cat. It was the cat five. Cat five. Cat five. Let's go. Now they're on the I cat remember. twelve. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, the cat. I only know really the cat five. White, red cat five. Uh, so, so just a quick uh, Miles Rogers wheels up connection here. The first uh, Kenny had this marketing firm. Uh, and I'm a, in case Miles is watching, wink. It was you know kind of a scam. I think we paid three hundred thousand dollars for our website. But no, but uh, they were they were amazing. Uh, Kenny's an amazing friend and mentor, but they had this marketing firm and they built our website for us. And we bought the, I think we bought it. We paid, I think, uh, for Ferrari red. Um, and every other metal bat used cursive fonts. It was like skateboard fonts. So every metal bat that every kid in the country, you'd go to the field and you couldn't even see what was on the bat. It was like, you know, skull crusher and all these weird fonts and so i decided when we first made our metal bat we would only have marucci in all caps and red and ferrari red font and uh that was going to be you know we were going to use our bats as billboards and so yeah bryce was our bryce was our first big kind of superstar dude that bat is iconic i I actually go ahead go ahead go ahead no, just real quick, just because you mentioned that red kind of font on there, how you did it different. When you started out, how did you brand yourself different? You know, were you, hey, we're going to be a niche handcrafted kind of thing. We're going to be small and better. And then the big beast will be Louisville. Or was the goal right off the bat, to, yeah, we're going to be big, we're going to scale up, and we're going to make a shitload of bats? Um. Well, it's, 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 it's all of the above, but it's kind of sequenced, right? So the sequencing was important because at first we were the underdog, right? 
we, our story, I actually told our sales team and we had this mobile tour. We had this big red batting cage. We went to all the big youth tournaments and I would get, um, I gotta be careful how I tell this story nowadays, but we would find eight really qualified female interns. Um, and, uh, and we would put them in baseball uniforms and, you know, they had like pigtails and eye black and we would teach them all the Marucci story. And we had, um, then we had this chief hitting officer, this actress who looked like Leslie Bibb. Uh, her name is Jennifer Birmingham. And we put her in a baseball uniform and I would have bodyguards for her and like cameras and boom mics. And we would take her to every youth tournament. And, um, and so what we did was we, we basically, our story, it was really difficult because people would say, well, I know you make the best big league bat, but why does that matter for metal bats? Well, actually one of our players, David Ortiz, big poppy came up with an idea. He and Pujols and said, Hey, you know, metal bats are all inloaded. He was like, you should make a balance bat so that the wood and the metal, because there were a lot of kids like Bryce that were starting to play metal bat tournaments on the week or, or on the weekends, right? They would play metal bat, U-Triple-S-A, travel ball. Then if they were really good by about 14, they were playing wood bat tournaments on the weekend. And so people, they were going from swinging these inloaded Easton bats to these perfectly balanced wood bats. So we made a metal bat, the Cat 5 and the Marucci Black, the first metal bats ever that were balanced exactly like a wood bat so kids could switch back and forth. So our whole shtick was, people would come in our tents and be like, $400. I've never heard of Marucci. I'd say, well, that means your kid probably shouldn't swing it. Like we're only for the most elite players. Like we were like, our whole shtick was this asshole kind of arrogant shtick that, um, and so I'd say, I'd say, if you, you want to do like a history project for, you know, for science or history, you should buy a Louisville Slugger. If you want to swing with the best player to swing. And so we trained our sales reps and I told them, if I ever catch you selling a bat, you're fired. All you're allowed to do is tell the Marucci story that we started in the backyard we're handcrafting bats for big leaguers that our players are our partners and that we make the best bat. Right. And so that was, that was our kind of story. And we, we really used the David and Goliath thing. And, and all joking aside, if you ever read Malcolm Gladwell's book, David and Goliath about how you use speed and you use unconventional weapons, well, our unconventional weapons was we made 300 videos making fun of Louisville Slugger and Easton. And we had a better product. Damn, dude. That's that's actually really funny because I can see like you know at, at the tournaments on the weekends and stuff if you were sitting out at a at a tent and you told uh, you know this dad you're like yeah man sorry like I guess he doesn't know what you don't know what it is because your your son's not the best player we no, like, we only we we have your son kind of sucks <laughs> we had all these little uh, you know little girls and guys young kids and they would I would literally hear them say to coaches well if you don't get it or you know if you don't know you won't you won't know. Like, I mean, it was like, that was our whole stick. That's dude. That is the craziest marketing strategy I've ever heard to feed into the egos of all these baseball players. Yeah. That is, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't have a marketing <laughs> budget. Uh, you, you actually get the most innovative when you don't have a budget. Right. No. So basically the whole thing with Marucci, this is crazy for me because I just had one and I loved it, but I didn't know the, the business behind it. But so you're saying, all of your marketing was, well, your whole company was built off of the players investing first off. So building partnerships, not doing marketing by having them do campaigns. Right. So you, that was one aspect. And then the other aspect was, is just ex, like making it exclusive to a point where people thought it was exclusive and then ended up getting huge. Yeah. So we did the red, I mean, listen, it's kind of overdone now, but at the time we did the red, red velvet rope thing, right? We, um, yeah. my partner, first of all, my partner, Kurt Ainsworth, he's the, still the CEO now. He, he's probably the most meticulous, thorough 
um, operator of a business in sense. I mean, he kept the books, he, he made the bats, he oversaw the manufacturing, he managed the relationship with the players. We didn't have sales reps. We were the only bat company with no sales reps in the big league locker rooms. So everybody else had sales reps going in, giving them purses with cash to take them to strip clubs and blah, blah, blah. We had no sales reps. We just, we had a waiting list and people would call and say, Hey, I want to order 36 bats. And we'd be, and we'd be like, basically you're not on our priority list. We only, <clears throat> so I made a rule in 2010 we would only go after um, star players in TV markets. So you had to be like a, you had to be hit lead off three, four, five hole on a TV market team and we'd take care of you. Everybody else was on a waiting list. So we had 400 big leaguers on a waiting list and it drove them crazy. It drove their agents crazy, right? <laughs> and so people, and so we slowly built the brand. And like one time in Phoenix at the All-Star Game in Phoenix in 2011, we had a party on the rooftop of the W Hotel and we had, you know, 36 Marucci Angels, you know, in their uniforms and pigtails out front on the red carpet. And we had all of our big leaguers there, bright, everybody from old guys like Cal Ripken and um, Albert Pujols and Ortiz and Harold Reynolds and all these guys, all the way down to Bryce. And we had this party and we only had $120,000 in our account. And we spent $100,000 on that party. And uh, But that night we raised $7 million at that party uh, from players. And so, uh, or, no, I'm sorry, not $7 million. We raised about a million dollars that night. And so we we were just all about building the brand, but really what it boiled down to is Kurt made the best product. I think the Marucci Woodbat is probably the best product in sports ever made. And other people have said that. That's not just, I don't, I'm not like John, I'm not like Donald Trump. Many, many people have said that. But but um, Kurt made an amazing product. I really was the brand builder and and focused on telling our story and created creating a mystique and an aura that you might not be good enough to swing this bat, right? How That's amazing. I love the, first of all, I love the voice of the brand, you know, Hey, maybe you suck ass. You're not ready. You know, you're shortstop for the Marlins, not a big enough market for us. You hit eighth. Maybe the bat's not for you. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Even our customer service, we trained our customer service that when people would call and be like, I spent, you know, whatever on this wood bat and it broke on the first at bat, you know, this sucks. We want our money back. We trained our customer service to be like, no, your kid just can't hit. Like, um, <laughs> like the 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 sweet spot on a wood bat is only as big as a like a like a half dollar or like a, a, a silver dollar. And if your bat broke on the first at bat, we'll give you one more. We'll send you a replacement. But like, you might want to try hitting it on the sweet spot. Like, I mean, we literally just permeated our whole our whole brand was that we make products for the most elite players. You know, and there's a lot of people, uh, aspiring entrepreneurs and stuff listening. Griffin's got younger fans who are listening. As, a, as an entrepreneur, you start a business and what's your goal, right? To get as many sales as possible, to generate as much revenue as you can quickly. Is it scary or ha- give some advice on how important it was to you to saying no? Was that scary at all? Or can that yeah, apply yeah. to different businesses? Everything about it's scary, right? I've built four businesses from scratch and it's always scary and it should be scary, right? You're becoming the fiduciary of someone else's capital and they spent years making that money after tax dollars that they entrusted you with as an investor. And so I just was telling someone the other day, getting advice about raising capital. They're like, well, I, you know, they were trying to get over the hump of feeling confident enough to raise capital. And I, I said something, I said, listen, it should be uncomfortable. This, (laughs) this is supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. Don't skip the hard part. If you can't get yourself clear enough on your idea and you can't get yourself confident enough in what you're going to do to ask someone for their money and you don't feel comfortable with that, well, then maybe you should rethink it or give it more thought. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. So, yes, it was scary. Um, Hell yes. 
And so we, everything about it was scary, right? Like when you, when you first start a company, we ordered, um, I remember sitting in a room with the Marucci Black Griffin. We had to decide how many 32s, how many 33s, how many 34s do we order? And we ordered 15,000 34 inch bats. And that fall at coaches conferences, coaches started telling kids to stop swinging 34 inch bats. And we sold like four, right? I mean, everything's scary about starting a new business, right? You take a lot of risk and you, you make a lot of mistakes and you learn really hard lessons. But, uh, but yeah, we, I, I had a high level of conviction, even though I was only 30, I was a young business guy and didn't have a lot of, I wasn't a well-educated, I was a, you know, uneducated redneck. And, um, I had a high level of conviction though, that we had the best product. Um, and so you don't always have to have the best product, right? If you're making an outdoor unit for Walmart that needs to sell at 1999, you might not need the best product, right? Um, so one of the things I tell young entrepreneurs all the time, and in fact, I have a platform I'm going to be launching this year specifically for first time entrepreneurs and small business owners. Um, but one thing I tell them is you need the right product, the right people, the right business model, the right capital structure, the right story and the right market dynamic. Okay. And a lot of times people put emphasis on one. I can't tell you how much bad advice I got as a young businessman. Because when you're young, like when you're Griffin's age, when you're a young business guy, you're surrounded by guys and they sound smart because they're rich, right? You're like, well, they got a plane or they got a big house or, or they're rich. They, they hit it big with this one business and they're rich and, they, and they're super emphatic. And so I tell all young business people, un- ignore emphatic advice, right? When someone gives you emphatic advice, you should pretty much always ignore it because it almost always ends up being either wrong or not relevant to your business, right? It's either outdated like it may have been right when they built their company, right? But the world's changing violently fast, right? So when people always say, you'll hear people, especially in venture capital, be like, it's all about the product or it's all about the people. Or, you got to make sure you have enough capital. Well, those are all true. I think there's six elements to business, right? The right product, the right, the right people, the right product, the right capital, the right business model, the right story, and the right market dynamic. Market dynamic meaning demand. You don't want to have a, a solution for a problem no one has, right? And so... Um, my mantra has become for young business people in the last couple of years that you can succeed without all six of those in place. You can, it'll just be hard. It'll just be, it'll take longer than you planned, cost more than you budgeted and be harder than you imagined. That's a really, that's, that's smart. That's smart. I like that. Griff, do you run into that a lot because you're young people know you're an entrepreneur, you're, you're rich, right? Do people, um, try to give you that kind of advice um, that he's talking about, you know, just kind of unsolicited. This is what you got to do, kid kind of stuff. I mean, yeah, I do get it. Luckily, though, you know, um, with Michael and everyone I've been surrounded by, it's a lot of people like Reed himself and, you know, in that orbit. So I've been very blessed to get a, a lot of good advice from a lot of um, young founders and a lot of founders that have built platforms that I use. So I've been very, very fortunate, but there's definitely times, especially when you start venturing out of like, um, into other, like, you know, clubhouse, for instance, um, hopping on there and talking, you get a lot of advice. It's like, especially like, like Reed said in in the investing world and the VC world, they'll be like, you know, it's all about the people. It's like, you know, like I invested just because I like the founders and like, that is the thing if they're your friend, right? Like, I have some people, um, some young founders that I've, I've become really good friends with that I invest in their companies because they're very smart and I know they're going to win and succeed one day. I just don't know which one it's going to be. So I still put in a check, but like to actually be successful and like, and when you're looking into companies, you know, like Reed said, it's about the people, your capital, like who's, who, who, who raised for you, who's on your table, like what are your strategics, you know, like 
what is your, your marketing like plan? Like, are you, do you have a solution or is it like he said, a solution for a problem that nobody has? Like there's a lot that goes in. And I think there's, um, people that are successful in one thing, sometimes try to venture out and tell other people how to be successful for everything. And that's where I've seen a, a lot of the issues. Um, you know, and, and the thing is usually the, the very best, the best of the best people that are actually like successful and very diverse. Um, they, they don't have an ego. I think ego is one of the biggest things that kills a lot of uh, people in the business world. And when you get that ego, it leads to a lot of like, you know, overlooking things and a lot of mistakes. And, uh, when people give you that misguided info, it's usually cause they have an ego. So so, so one thing, and Griffin is Griffin. You're ten times more just sophisticated and business savvy than I was at your age, and that's an understatement. Maybe probably a hundred times. But I, I will say, I'm not saying that people shouldn't listen to older people. They shouldn't listen to yeah, of course, rich, rich guys. But what I'm what I'm talking about is beware of of specific, precise, emphatic advice. Right? Nick Saban actually had a great quote one time. Nick Saban said, um, "They said, you know, your do you have a your general rule is that you blah blah blah. Your general rule, and the people kept trying to put words in his mouth about you have a rule about a recruiting, or you have a rule about throwing the ball or passing the ball, or whatever." And he cut him off as only he can. He said, "I don't do rules." He's like, "The game changes every year." And rules create bias. And, and so what I'm saying is a lot of times people have a bias. They have confirmation bias about how they succeeded. And the, the world now with quantum computing and AI and um, automation and blockchain or whatever, the world's changing abruptly, violently fast. I mean, I when people ask me questions about TikTok or about technology or this or that, <laughs> I just go, I don't know. Like, I, I like it, it's, it's hard. So I guess I was saying just this emphatic advice. The best example is, um, I try to tell people two big kind of big pieces of advice. Anything you do, don't let it be undercapitalized. You know, when someone comes to me and says, hey, I'm doing this amazing thing, you know, we're curing cancer and this and blah, blah, blah. And it's amazing, whatever. And then they'll, I'll say, how much are you raising? Well, we're raising a $500,000 seed round. Like, what? You're yeah. not going to throw a good party for $500,000. Like, what are you talking about? And so my number one thing for all young business people is if you think you need to raise a million bucks, raise five million bucks, right? Like, don't be undercapitalized. Um, and then num- number two is um, thing, what I said earlier, it's supposed to be uncomfortable. People are always looking for advice to make themselves feel better. Sometimes you're supposed to have anxiety. You're supposed to, it's supposed to be hard. It's like um, UFC is a weird example, but it's like, I can tell you about the psychology of fighting. I can tell you about fighting strategy. I cannot tell you what it feels like to get punched in the nose, right? And that's a cliche analogy, but I think it applies to being a young entrepreneur. Mike, that's Mike Tyson's quote, right? You can have all the game plan you want, but as soon as you get punched in the face, everything changes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, well, I'm, I'm, I have another here. thing real quick. I have one more thing I want to highlight about, um, you know, what Reed was saying. And, um, you know, he was talking about, like, being uncomfortable. Um, and I and that's, a, that's one of the best advice, like, pieces of advice I've gotten from um, a lot of great people in the business world is, you never want to be too comfortable because the second you're, you're too comfortable is whenever you start making mistakes, right? Like being uncomfortable is like, that's why not anyone can just walk in and be a successful entrepreneur. It's like, because there's a lot of stuff, there's a lot of things every single day that, that you're always uncomfortable, right? Like you're always like on edge, there's always stuff going on. You either, you know, something crazy happens and uh, you know, like he said, his 34 inch bats, he's, he, he ordered 15,000 and only sold a couple, right? Like stuff like that. You, if, if you're ever 
too comfortable or too, you want to be confident, but not overconfident, I guess is, is a good way to put it. Cause the second you get too comfortable is like when all hell breaks loose. And, and on that note, Griffin, um, I, I tell my kids all the time that, um, people are always trying to skip the hard part, right? You know, so when people come to me for advice, there's usually two things. If they're trying to start a company or raise capital or do something that has risk, they're always trying to help me figure out how to do it without the risk. I'm like, well, there's actually that path doesn't exist, right? So unless you're a trust fund kid, right? Um, there is no path without the risk. So I can, used to, I would listen to people and I would try to give them advice. And it took me years to realize I was paying attention to their words, but not really listening. As they say in white men can't joke. I was, I was listening, but I wasn't hearing Jimmy. Right. And I was like, now I realize that like 50% of the time when people ask me for advice, what they're really saying is how do I do this where there's no risk and it's not hard. You can't. Right. And then the other thing is, is the skipping the hard part part, right? Like I, I get people all the time. I want to be a musician. You know, everyone says I'm the greatest singer they've ever heard. You know, I, I, can you please introduce me to some producers? I know you work with the Jonas brothers or this, that, and I'll say, well, hold on. Do you have music on Instagram? Do you have music on YouTube? Have you allowed the market to decide if your music's good? Have you ever? And I realize as I'm giving advice to young people, no matter what it is, including my daughters, right? That uh, They want to be a writer like Taylor Swift. They want to write songs like Taylor Swift. Okay, well, Taylor Swift didn't have friends. And she went to the learning center every day after school and wrote about 300 songs a week for five years. Okay. I don't think, I don't believe you that you want to be a writer because you wouldn't do that. Right. Uh, I want to be, uh, as Tiger says, I want to be good at my wedges. No, you don't. You practice your wedges. You go to the range every day for five hours. Right. So one of my bosses, my mentors used to say when that people would say, well, I want to have, I, I, you know, I want to have abs. And he'd be like, no, you don't. You'd like to have abs. If you wanted abs, there's, it's not a secret how to get abs. Right. You just got to eat clean and do all whatever. But people don't, people always say they, they want to be an entrepreneur. Uh, they want to build this business. They want to be a songwriter. They want to be whatever. And I'm, and I, my, I've kind of become one of my, I don't want to say shticks, but one of my mantras for almost all young people, and not even young people, even of all ages, is I always say, do you? Do you really want that? Or you can have anything you want, but are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing to take that risk? Are you willing to go through that hard part? Yeah, well, that's no, that's that's something I, I struggled with that too. Um, you know, when like six months ago when Sway first started, I was a shithead. And like, I would always say like, I want to do this or I want to do that. And, you know, I didn't even have a calendar, like I was saying. And then, you know, Michael kind of roped me in and not until this last month, really, uh, I still wouldn't like waking up early. And, you know, I, I wasn't making a lot of sacrifice, but like, yeah, I want to do this. And of course, Michael was helping me and putting me in the right spots. But, um, you know, until a couple of days ago, or not a couple of days, a couple of weeks ago, he was like, all right, I'm babying you too much. Um, it's time for, you know. Like, cause I was depending on him a lot for, for almost everything really. Um, and now it's like, I've been putting in, you know, yesterday I put in 17 hours. Like today I'm probably going to put in another 17, 18 hour day well, like, Griffin, Griffin, working on uh, building. On that note, Griffin. And I'm, I'm impressed that you said that because if you think like talent, you're always going to be talent. Right. And no yep. one who's really successful. Um, if you look at people who are really successful, Tom Cruise doesn't think like talent. Right. Um, uh, he may yeah. be weirdo, but he's, he doesn't think like talent, right? He thinks like an owner. He thinks like a check writer. He thinks like a producer, right? Um, I mean, you could just keep going down the line. People who really succeed in life don't think like talent, right? Uh, Reese Witherspoon thought like talent for most of her career. And then she realized like nobody was calling. She was getting older or whatever. And so she stopped thinking like talent. So at your age to have that realization that 
you don't want to think you can if you can sleep in you can lay by the pool you can rely on other people and you'll probably live a perfectly good life but if you're ambitious and you want to do something impactful and meaningful you can't think like talent yeah and you were talking about malcolm gladwell before it's you know it's a ten thousand hour thing right not to be skeptical or negative but most people talking about a dream or a goal are not and won't put in the ten thousand hours and you need that ten thousand hours whether you want to be an entrepreneur you have to put your time in there whether you want to be a songwriter like taylor swift Whatever you want to do to be successful, you've got to put in those 17-hour days. Like you talked about, you've got to be on the range five hours practicing your wedges when it's way more fun to practice your drives, right? you got to worry about those details and, and work at it. Yeah, and that comes down to a big thing too, and I know Reed can probably touch up on this, but um, there's a lot of things that I like to do, but I don't have the, you don't have a lot of true like passions, right? Like there's a lot of things you like to do in your, in your free time, but you know, building a company, I it's, it comes down to passion because you have to put everything else aside to do that one thing, especially if you're building a company, I get nothing else matters. Like I'm sure when Reed had Marucci, I mean, that's all he, he you know, woke up Marucci, went to bed Marucci eating lunch Marucci, like it, it consumes your life. So you know, even your daughter's talking about being a writer. They like, they would like to write, but it's not like their passion. Cause like Reed was saying, Taylor Swift would go and spend 300 hours a week after school and, or however many hours, I forget 300 songs and whatever, five yeah, hours yeah. Yeah. after school. And, uh, you know, that's, that's passion. You can't, you can't like writing songs and then do that. It just doesn't work. And Reed, I want to talk too about, and we've been touching on this too, but talk about Dickens Capital Group because you kind of transitioned and we haven't talked about it, but how many startups you've been involved in, how many, you know, seed rounds and dealing with founders and all that stuff. Talk a little bit about your journey with that. Yeah. um, So it's funny. I um, handed the CEO job over to my partner, uh, created an independent board for Marucci. I stayed the chairman for a while, um, but really set up a holding company. I mean, Dickens Capital Group is really not even a, it's not even a, a forward branded thing. It's really just a holding company where I started looking for opportunities to replicate kind of the lessons I had learned. Um, I, I learned over the years though, um, that I'm, I'm really not a big fan of venture capital. It took me a while to, 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 to realize that I, I actually, I would say I've repented, you know, to the priest, um, because, I raised a lot of dozens of rounds of capital for several different early stage companies and some succeeded and some were zombies like, like all venture capital. But I realized the older I get that I really am a buffetologist at heart, not just because I'm old, but because, uh, you know, you can have eyeballs and you can have buzz and you can have momentum and you can have door count and you can have shelf space and you can have all these great things. And there are unicorns out there that sell for $800 million because they got in 2000 doors. And even though they're losing 40 million a year, they, you know, Pepsi or Budweiser bought them. There's, there's plenty of unicorns, but I always say to young entrepreneurs, if, if the story you're telling people when you're fundraising or more dangerous, the story you're telling yourself is about that company that just sold for 400 million to Budweiser or PepsiCo or that venture capital company that got a billion dollar valuation, even though they're losing 10 million a month and their unit economics don't work and never will. Um, if you're telling yourself that story about that unicorn, then you might as well do another irrational thing. And this is what I tell them. Would you go up to somebody and say, hey, you won the Powerball lottery. What convenient store did you go to? Where did you park? Which cash register did you buy the lottery ticket from? Which, which 
what kind of car did you drive to the convenience store? None of that shit matters. It's the Powerball lottery, right? And I think what I what bugs me the most about venture capital is that it's it it lures investors in based on these Powerball lottery winners, right? And then there's a lot of people that got rich off of the Powerball Powerball lottery winners. Um, but generally speaking, the older I get, the and and, and I, I know it's a long answer, but my business focus is really moved towards building real businesses with real cash flow and buying real businesses with real cash flow. When someone comes to me and says, Hey, you know, we've got this insane thing that can like, you know, cure cancer and give you a massage. I'm like, good luck, man. Like, you know, here's some books to read. And they're like, yeah, yeah, but we we're raising a million dollars of seed capital. I'm always like, not for me. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I will. It's like uh, Peter or Paul in the Peter or Paul in the Bible is like uh, silver and gold. I don't have, but I'll give you some you know, good advice. I, I, I really have, I think the venture capital world is never coming back. And when I say never coming back, I know there's a lot of money in it, so it'll stay around for a while. But I think the day and age of getting ridiculous valuations on bullshit businesses, is, I think it's going away. Um, I think in the future, you're going to need to have real IP, um, real cash flow, uh, and real growth. And so that, to me, has helped me shift my focus to LA. LA Golf has a shaft business, right? And it has 80% gross margins. And Wow. It's, it's not scalable, but when it hits 30 million in revenue, it'll probably be doing 13, 14 million of cash flow. That's what I want, right? Um, TaylorMade is a good example. I've tried to, I, I've, I've been pursuing TaylorMade for a while. Um, that, that business has real cash flow. Um, I love businesses that have real, that, that have real financials. So right now, that's what I'm doing. I'm looking for businesses with cash flow to acquire. Um, I love, for, I love entrepreneurs. I love guys who, who are starting something with two sticks, right? Trying to start a fire with two sticks. I love that. Uh, but as an investor, um, typically when you invest in a startup, usually it's for relationship purposes or networking purposes, but it's not a great investment. Like, uh, I guess I'll put a, a finer point on it. When I hear actors, athletes, billionaires, celebrities say, well, I do a little venture capital. I always think, oh, well, you're not very smart, right? <laughs> um, and I'm, yeah. I'm, being, I'm, I'm, I'm being mean because the only way the venture capital model works is if you have really premium deal flow and you do like 50 a year, right? So if you have premium deal flow and you do 50 deals a year, then you're going to hit a few home runs and it's all going to work out, right? Like Griffin probably has the deal flow. He has good that's what I'm, his deals. Right. Yep, that's, but but that's generally speaking, most wealthy people, celebrities, athletes, whatever, they do four or five deals a year. And that is a recipe to bat zero. And, and that's just, you know, that's just not fair to if you're a fiduciary of other people's capital or even the, the capital that you work really hard for. Right. Yeah, that's 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 really interesting. You say that because um, the model you're talking about is we, you know, like I said, we're very fortunate to have, you know, um, great people around us and get great deals. And, you know, I've already put money into over, uh, you know, 20 companies. So I'm building out my portfolio. But for me, it's more about the long-term play, even the money then. And I know that might sound crazy because we all love money, but for me, it's really important to build that portfolio and show people um, that I can dig myself out of the mud from being a, a TikToker, and then making, making good choices and putting my money into, into successful companies. So then one day, whenever I go out and uh, you know, I'm uh, people understand who I am and they see that I actually know what I'm talking about. So that's a big you know thing what? for me. You know what, Griffin? And I, I and I've been so impressed with you just because you have a you have a very clear head. Um, and and I don't and I don't even want to say for your age for anyone. I think you have you have a clear head about how you think about business. And I'm I'm not giving you advice, but when I talk to most young people about business, if you have the ability to create wealth with whatever you do, 
um, swinging a baseball bat, running a football, throwing a, you know, shooting a basketball, making TikTok videos. If you have the ability to create wealth, creating, creating wealth is really hard. And if you have the ability to create wealth, you should put your time and energy into creating wealth. Don't try to be an investor. I'm not saying you, you, I'm not saying you shouldn't invest that, 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 that can be part of your time allocation and your cash allocation. But generally speaking, um, I, I had a friend who gave me some very hard advice one time because I was sprinkling money around in all these deals because I, you know, was kind of enamored with the fact that I had good deal flow. And he was like, do you want to be an investor? Do you want to, do you want to underwrite deals? Is this what you want to do? Do you want to be an investor? And I was like, no. And he's like, stop investing. He was like, you need to use your talent to create wealth because once you've created wealth and I, and uh, for Griffin, Griffin, you may have a number in mind, right? But when you get to X million dollars in the bank, then you actually turn into an investor, right? Because you're losing money by leaving it in cash or whatever. At a certain point of net worth, you have to become an investor. But usually by then, as Warren Buffett says, you can't be a good investor until you've been an operator. Usually you've been an operator and you've been in businesses long enough that you become a good investor. I think a lot of times the mistake people make is because they have access to good deal flow, they they kind of become a hobbyist investor, right? And I And I would say, if you're going to do that, put it on Alabama, right? Um, <laughs> like, yeah, I've got much better things you can do with your money. You know, I like that you to talk about cash flow because talk about traditional businesses because especially the young people listening out here, everyone wants to be involved in tech. Everyone wants to be a part of a startup. Everyone's looking for a different way to do things, something sexy. But you look at a business like an auto repair shop, great margins, rarely go out of business, but there's nothing sexy about repairing cars, you know? Talk about the traditional business out there that kids don't think about. Well, not to go all Tony Robbins on you, but you kind of have to decide first what you want, right? Um, if you've got, if you're, it's not just what you want, but what phase of life you're in, right? Like I'm heading into a phase of life where I'm gonna have two blondes that are gonna turn into teenagers, right? And like, I wanna be present more, I wanna be home more, right? I, I deserve it, by the way. But uh, I want to be I want to be around right when my girls are in high, you know middle school high school and so you have to decide as a young entrepreneur or a young business person what is it that you want right if you want return on cash like I I tell all young everyone not young people I keep saying that I sound like my granddad um, I tell everyone to read the Four Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss right if you want to make passive cash so that you can sit on a beach or so that you can dick around all the time that's okay right then there you should start a web business. And you should figure out a way to make 100, 200 grand a year so that you can travel or whatever it was if you have kids and or if you're someone who really likes the game of making money, right? I just want to make money. Well, then you want to think about business differently, right? If you're young and you go, hey, you know what? I've got four or five years I can put into this business, right? And if it's a home run, I'm going to make $100 million. Do it, right? I always say the only thing that matters until you're 30 is what you learn and who you meet. So if you kill three or four years on some tick, you know, a, a technology thing and it goes under, I promise you those lessons will be priceless and it was better good than going to business school, right? So, so, so I really would, if I'm talking to a 20s crowd or a young crowd, if you want to spend two, three, four years building a technology company or building some idea you have and you swing for the fence, swing for the fence, do it. Because you're going to, if it goes under and you lose your money and it all goes to whatever, to shit and you end up in your parents' basement, I promise you that was a better experience than going to business school and memorizing case studies on businesses that are outdated, right? And so, uh, so that's really my advice is just decide what you want. And, that, and what you want changes with each age and stage of life, whether you're, I just want to travel and, and I want to 
you know, I want to write. I want to be a writer, so I need a business that makes passive cash flow. Okay, well, that's a different path, right? I want to create generational wealth for my kids and my grandkids. That's a different path. So I think deciding what you want, and Warren Buffett says all of his mistakes were from not spending enough quiet time and thought. Sir Thomas Aquinas actually originally said that in the 1700s, that all of man's miseries come from not spending enough quiet time and thought. I spend two hours down by the beach on Monday morning and Friday morning without my phone, just letting my mind, about half the time letting my mind wander, the other half the time trying to solve problems. I spend two or three nights a week in the sauna for 45 minutes without my phone. I spend probably a minimum of five to six hours a week just thinking. And I don't know many people my age with four kids and multiple businesses that do that, right? And I think for Griffin's stage of life, that's difficult too. But I think spending enough quiet time and thought to know what you really want, then mapping out that path to get there is 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 crucial. That's that's uh, that's something I definitely struggle with and I've been working on lately. Uh, you know, another thing too is, is balancing between work uh, things you enjoy and having that like quiet time to sit down and think. So that's definitely, um, you know, I, I, I love that you do that. I I'm working to get to a point where I can say that I do, but I'm not even close I think maybe 30 I, minutes a week in the shower. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard, but it's hard. It, it really is because people like you Griffin have a bias towards action, right? Your default setting, if you think of your brain like an iPhone, your the your default setting is not set on sitting still. Um, but it, yeah. but it's but it's but it's worth but it's worth it. Yeah, and for me, meditation's key. I I do I meditate 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes um like before dinner. And it is a good thing to kind of slow down. I've got two kids too, and I've got a bunch of jobs I'm working on too. But you have to make time for it. It's like anything else, like, oh, I'm too busy to work out. I can never. There's 45 minutes or an hour in your day that you can if you're willing to sacrifice. You know, you sacrifice your hour of watching, you know, law and order on the couch. You know, you just have to make time. And like you said, Griffin, too, well, scheduling is huge. Also, think of your brain like a, a Griffin for your for people that are you're in your stage of life who may be listening. I would think of your brain like a I know people don't use computers anymore, but, but, uh, you know, when you used to have windows, right. You are even on your phone, right. You have like 47 windows open, right. Sometimes your brain, your brain's a supercomputer and sometimes it has several hundred windows open that aren't resolved. Right. And, and, and it requires quiet time uh, to, to, to X out of all those windows properly and make sure everything's resolved and make sure your brain's clutter free. And one thing that willpower doesn't work. That book I mentioned, one of the things it talks about is that your life has to be clutter free, right. Uh, your brain has to be clutter free and uh, you can control your environment. And when I think a lot of people um, struggle with controlling their environment, right? They have people they don't enjoy. They have work that they don't enjoy. They have tasks that they don't enjoy. They have uh, just everything about their life is toxic or unenjoyable. And I, I, I would say I make a lot of really difficult decisions on a weekly basis definitely on a monthly basis, but I make a lot of really difficult decisions that are purely to purge my environment. Um, they'll say, why aren't you going to that meeting? Because I don't want to be around those people. I'll, 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 call, I'll, I'll call in. Why didn't you, you know, I, I stopped checking email three months ago, just as an experiment. So my assistant checks my email. She texts me if there's anything urgent on there. I haven't checked email because just opening my email inbox I would see dozens and dozens of names and issues that would stress me out or make me angry. And they're things that I shouldn't even be dealing with. Right. So I'm just constantly trying to purge my environment to let my, to let my uh, time and energy go towards the things that matter. And I think that's a lifelong challenge. 
What else? We're almost out of time. I mean, I think that's some great advice to end on, especially for young entrepreneurs. Bethany for Franco, sure. we interviewed, um, and I loved what she said too. She said, be organized in every aspect of your life, whether it's your desk, your your closet, your car, be organized. I think that's other good advice. Well, what else do you want to, to end on? Do you have any final words for well, the- Well, first the I want to- well, first I want to, uh, Griffin, I just want to say thanks uh, for making the videos for us. We, uh, we, um, I'm excited. We're doing the uh, Happy Gilmore Challenge coming up for our new shaft. So I wanted to, before, we, before we're done, say Heck thanks yeah. for making those videos. Um, you know, my, my general worldview um, towards entrepreneurialism, and this is the thing I brag about Griffin and all of the guys in the Sway House all the time. I actually say this several times a week. Um, they're not TikTokers, they're entrepreneurs, right? And there are TikTokers out there. There's some by the pool here where I'm, <laughs> uh, a TikToker is very different than an entrepreneur, right? Um, and I think the more you think of yourself as an entrepreneur, uh, the more you'll behave like an entrepreneur, right? The more you'll assess risk, the more you'll uh, allocate your time properly, the more you'll al create alignment in your life, right? There are so many people that cause friction in your life because they're not aligned with you right? Their outcome for success are, is not the same as your outcome for success. What they want out of life, what they want out of that business, what they want out of that project, what they want out of you is not aligned with what you want, right? And so I think identifying misalignment, which also takes a lot of quiet time and thought, right? But identifying misalignment and figuring out a way um, to navigate a path uh, to where you want to go and then making sure there's no clutter along the way uh, that's one thing I really, Griffin, I really appreciate about you guys. And I'm, I'm proud of what you guys are doing because I think you're, you're building a business empire using a modern tool. And that's no different than someone building a business empire, you know, using uh, the World Wide Web, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Reed, I, I appreciate that, man. I, uh, you, you dropped some really good wisdom in this, in this podcast. I think this is one of the most relatable ones I've, uh, I've had so far. And I, uh, I just want to say thanks for coming on so short notice. And, um, you know, I, like I said that I, I posted up some content today that I've sent around to, uh, you know, to, uh, Aaron and miles and they loved it too. So, um, you know, I'm looking forward for you to check that out. It's pretty dope. Next time I invite you to play golf, I won't ghost you and go to Mexico. <laughs> it's all good. Next time I'll make sure that I, um, don't get as wild and, um, keep the van more clean. I, I, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, listen, you only get to be young once. Uh, well, listen, it I was... appreciate you guys. Have, I appreciate you guys having me on. This is, I'm really excited about what you're doing. Uh, I think, I think the ability you have to, to move the needle. Um, I've always said that branding is changing the way people think and feel, but marketing is getting someone to do something, getting someone to actually do something. And I think your ability to get people to, to, to mobilize and to, to move the needle to actually get people to move, do thinking, do things is extraordinary. And uh, congrats on all your success. Reed, I appreciate you, man. Thank you so much for uh, coming on. And Tom, you killed it as always, man. Thank you. guys. Yeah, and actually just on the read that you just mentioned, Griff, I want to give you a shout out for the work you, you, you just mentioned mobilizing, how much money did you just raise for the Barstool Sports Fund? You and Josh, that's fucking incredible um, what you did. We raised uh, about 250K last weekend, but um, we got some really cool people in there and it was, it was a great experience. You know, we have, you know, a co-founder of Netflix and, uh, you know, founder of Tinder, founder of Twitch and founder of co-founder of YouTube and uh, founder of Android. I mean, the list goes on. It's like, 
you know, we had some really, really cool people in there and I, it was, it was just a, a incredible experience. So I'm blessed. Wow. That's, that's amazing. That's right. You shouldn't have told me that. I'm going to, I'm going to circle back with you to try to get you to help me. Uh, me and my wife have a mental health platform, so I'll get, we'll circle back with you. I, uh, I, w- I can always find ways to integrate charity. So just let me know, Reed. Okay. Well, guys, thank Thanks, you so thank much. You. Make sure you subscribe if you're listening. Griffin, I do this every week with the biggest names in business. So thank you so much for listening and have a good day, guys.